and then I think Jonathan was going to give a brief, um, some believe. some brief highlights of his uh, uh, excursion this weekend with the community out in Everett. So. Thank you. Blessed be Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring, the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name, study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Telling him that he was indeed a follower and a believer of Yeshua, that is, 
our Messiah. And in fact, um, at the age of 19 is when he, uh, he had some of his most intimate Talmudim um, have attested to this, that at the age of 19, Yeshua appeared to him in a dream and revealed to himself that, that, that Yeshua is indeed the Messiah. And for the rest of his life, a um, hundred years plus, he, uh, he studied the scriptures, studied tradition, studied um, Jewish literature and sources, and I was proving this, and with him was developing some of his most closest students with, with that in mind. Um, one of his most closest students um, I got to meet this past weekend in, in Everett. He was, again, a Messianic rabbi. When I say Messianic, that is, he believes uh, with uh, impeccable fervor that Messiah is Yeshua, as we know him to be exact. And, um, and when I say rabbi, I mean he, he has different levels of smicha that are um, that are at the same par as some of the most valid Rosh. For those who don't know, smicha means like ordination. Right. So as of now, he can um, it, think of becoming a rabbi as almost attaining a tech college degree to, to a certain extent. You have to have certain uh, specifications and pass certain tests before you can make a ruling in a certain category. As of now, I believe he can he can paskin, that is, make a ruling in the laws of Shabbat, Midah, I think conversions, he can perform a Brit Milah, and his full-time job is he's a sofer. He's, he, he supports him his family by writing for scrolls, and um, does the scrolls inside of a mezuzah, etc. So that's the type of caliber of person he is. And I've never seen someone with uh, a great re recall and addressing for the uh, New Testament. Uh, he's spent the greater uh, per, uh, part of his life uh, in, in the land of Israel studying um, the scriptures, including the New Testament. And from what, from what I understand, he, uh, he didn't give me permission to share his name. And in fact, he, uh, he, was, he, is, he was careful on how much he really reveals of himself. Um, but he, um, I think Yeshua, again, appeared to him basically in a vision and a dream. And, uh, and he, um, it, was, it was just phenomenal in order to see firsthand from him the passion, the, the absolute love for Messiah, uh, coming from someone who looks like he should be in the, in the old city at, at the hotel right now, that right there was was just um, it makes you cry just to see that God is still keeping a remnant of His people, His most intimate people, uh, uh, alive and well. And, um, so him and his family, he's uh, has a wife and uh, four young kids. They live in Israel um, and they come back and forth to the states periodically. Um, and this is this will make you have goosebumps. Uh, him and his wife really feel that and have been called by God for the last few years to develop uh, and to uh, reach out to other Orthodox Jews, and, and primarily Jerusalem, who are believers in Yeshua. And they gave me a um, statistic. Uh, out of the three million religious Jews in the land of Israel, they personally know of hundreds, literally hundreds that are have the exact same uh, story that they have. That Yeshua is appearing to them in dreams, or they've inherited this, uh, this 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 concept of him being the Messiah. And granted, he is a Sephardic rabbi, so the exposure he has had has been almost exclusively in the Sephardic community. So um, so out, out of that three million, he, he's he's still only been exposed to a small pocket. But God is clearly moving. 
regardless. Uh, so that was phenomenal. And and some of these people, um, it's it's just uh, from from what I understand, my understanding of it is that it is absolutely clear that they have no doubts that Yeshua is appearing to them and, and, and visions, revelations, and dreams. And he listed off some of the three are three in, uh, particular. Sephardic rabbis that are even alive t today or had just passed away that um, he says he, he personally knows and personally knows that they uh, are, are, are uh, strong believers in this and have been so for, for a while as she was a trip to them. Um, so, and that, that in and of itself raises a lot of questions and a lot of um, uh, a lot of concerns or what have you, but um, I have uh, a lot of confidence in this man and, was, and, and his, his work as, as well as, able, as I was able to observe and to talk with him and to listen to him as well this past weekend. So um, uh, I guess that's, that's all, that, that, that was the main highlight of the entire trip was just to hear that report uh, and that God is definitely not confined um, to any, any, uh, in, in, anything other than what, what his will is. If, if he wants to appear in dreams and visions and reveal himself to his people, um, he, he will do it. Amen. So, yes, that, that was a, a fantastic experience. Praise God. So, you know, we need to definitely keep that community in Israel and wherever they are in prayer because even though he personally knows of a couple, two, three hundred people that are orthodox and yet fervent believers in Messiah Yeshua. <clears throat> There's still two or three hundred out of three million. So they're still a very, very small minority. They still, you know, um, they still, you know, are, are at risk of great persecution, you know. But it was really encouraging for me to hear that God is definitely moving, you know within that community and it just goes to, to show that orthodoxy and believing in Yeshua are not mutually exclusive. So, uh, okay. So tonight we're going to talk about uh, Torah scroll etiquette. Uh, my, my thought around this was, you know, we've been, <clears throat> we've been doing, you know, Shocker right now for a few years. Uh, praise God, we've had a minion every Shabbat, except for maybe once or twice, which means we were able to always have a Torah service and bring out the Torah scroll, etc. And so, but it occurred to me as I've watched over the last few months, I've watched, you know, we've gotten more and more of the guys involved in that, which is great, uh, and, and we want to continue to encourage that. But as, as I've watched, you know, I've noticed some things uh, where I've said, eh, yeah, we probably need to, you know, we probably need to... Uh, um, uh, we need to review some some basics here, um, and let me just give a disclaimer. I'm not, you know, I'm not the guru, you know. So I'm, you know, don't look at me as like the guy that knows all of the ins and outs here. But this is going to be largely a halakhic discussion, because at the end of the day, um, we want to, uh, we need to recognize, you know. The Torah scroll, there's nothing magic about it. It's just, you know, ours, of course, is not kosher. We'll talk about the criteria for kosher uh, scrolls in a minute. 
you know, ours is a printed scroll, you know, but even if we had a kosher scroll, it's still just ink on, you know, on either sheep or cowhide, probably cowhide, um, and, you know, stitched together. I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing magic about a Torah scroll. There's nothing magic about a, the written Bible that some of you are holding on your lap, right? But at the same time, there is, right? Because it does represent God's revelation of himself to us. And um, in, 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 in particular, it represents, it's a representation of the living word Messiah, Yeshua. So we, we need to always be cognizant of that. So uh, some of this stuff you guys already know. So some of this is going to be review. I think we can get through most of this pretty quickly. We are going to, I've got the, the, the Torah scroll out because we are going to do a couple of demonstrations. Okay. Hands-on Hands workshop, yes. So I will be looking for volunteers. Um, and so, so most of you know some of this. Probably none of you know all of it. Um, but this all, a lot of this comes right out of your sitter. Certainly it's all found in the Shulchan Aruch. Um, but what I've tried to do is just really focus, you know, kind of boil it, boil it down. So, uh, so these are just a few things that we're going to cover. The criteria for a kosher Torah scroll, um, the components of a scroll. We're going to talk about the sanctity of a scroll. Uh, and then here's where we'll, we'll get into kind of some hands-on, um, you know, demonstration in terms of handling it. Um, and then we'll talk about transferring and disposing uh, of, a, of a scroll as well. So. You mentioned the Shulchan Baruch, if you could. Yeah, sorry. For the folks who get study. Yeah. <laughs> so the Shulchan Aruch is, is, the, is a, uh, a volume of work that was written by Rabbi Yosef Karo in about 1500 of the Common Era that basically um, boils down all of the halakhic discussions from the, from the Talmud and other places, Mishnah Torah and other places, and kind of boils it all down to here's what you do. And in fact, um, I was at the Charlotte Rescue Mission on Sunday morning and I'm I'm working the uh, I'm working the griddle, you know, uh, cooking eggs for 150 men, and the guy standing next to me, uh, who I've met just kind of in passing, but never really had any conversations. I'm standing there, and we're just we're just working, we're kind of talking, and then he kind of he kind of looks at me and goes, you know, I was driving over here this morning and listening to NPR, and they were having a discussion about the Talmud, and he starts telling me about this discussion on the radio about the Talmud, and and how they were saying that, you know, well, it's just never-ending, never you know, questioning and what, where does it ever end and, you know, and, um, and they never reach a conclusion, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And he goes, what do you think about that? I'm thinking, that's kind of, uh, I don't mean, it's, it's like 6.45 in the morning. I'm having, somebody's asking me about what I think about the Talmud. You know? um, and I said, well, I think that's wrong. I, I said, there are conclusions, and all the conclusions are basically laid down in the Shulchan Aruch. So if you don't want to wade through all the debate and all the discussion, if you just want the punchline, you go to the Shulchan Aruch, you know. And so anyway, so the Shulchan Aruch basically um, redacts all of Jewish law, and in there you can find the specific laws around uh, the Torah scroll and related matters. And that's available in English as well as Yes, it is. Um, probably a few other languages as well. but. Okay, so criteria for a kosher scroll, um, obviously it, it has to be 
uh, handwritten by a sofa, by a scribe. Um, it's written on a special uh, parchment. Um, and we're going to go through each one of these in, in a little bit more. Again, I'm going to go through this because I'm assuming most of you guys are fairly familiar with this. This is well, kind of what I view as kind of the basics. Uh, there's a certain type of ink that's used, a certain type of quill that's used, um, and there's a unique script that's used uh, in most, uh, in, in virtually all Torah scrolls. There may be slight differences in some customs, but it's a, it's a, uh, it's basically a unique script that can only be used in Torah scrolls. It's not used uh, in any other any other document. Uh, a Torah has exactly 304,805 letters. Okay, if it has one letter less or one letter more, it is not a kosher Torah scroll. Okay, so. Um, and of course, any of you who know, and I'm, I'm not going to go into that in this session, but uh, I would encourage you guys, if you don't know, do a little research on on the process that a sofa goes through, you know, and that's why um, we can have a high degree of confidence that the scroll that we would have today is virtually identical to a scroll that Yeshua would have read from in the first in the first century common era. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's typically 42 lines per sheet. Um, that's the normal standard or most common standard. Uh, there is a, another uh, variation where I think it's 71 lines per sheet, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay, so with respect to the parchment, has to be the skin of a kosher animal. Um, most people assume that it's normally sheepskin. Uh, it certainly can be sheepskin, but the most common skin is a cowhide. There's just more real estate on a cow than there is a sheep. So, um, so most of them are cowhide. Um, and a typical squirrel will have between 62 and 84 sheets, which would be you know a, a section of skin, and then those those sheets are sewn together with with sinew. So you'll see if you have a if you have a if you've ever seen an actual scroll, you know you, as you're rolling it, you'll reach a seam, and that's where the sinew has been has sewn two sheets together. And you keep rolling, you'll see another seam, etc. Um, the scribe will actually score the parchment before he begins writing. So he'll actually go through and put lines so that he can, you know, if you've ever wondered, you know, how how do they keep it so straight and neat. He actually scores the skin before he writes it so that everything will be, you know, lined up properly, etc. Uh, the ink and quill, uh, only black is, is the only permissible color in terms of the ink. Um, has to be permanent, cannot be uh, erasable. That's, that, that would make sense. Um, and it's made of uh, gallnut juice and gum. Whatever that is, I'm not exactly sure what that is, and then some tints that are added to bring out the, I guess, make it really dark. Um, the quill uh, has to be a a feather, a coat from a kosher bird. Uh, goose is typically what's used. Doesn't have to be goose, but that's normally what's uh, used. You cannot use um, any kind of iron or metal or lead or anything like that. So. Um, I don't know what the 
what the reason is, but um, you know, I, I think the quill is probably the oldest writing, you know, one of the earliest writing you, you know, instruments. And so I think that's just kind of the tradition that's evolved. Right. Right. Yeah, that's, good. that's a good point. So we don't know what gallnut juice is? I, I do not know what gallnut juice. No, but if you would like to do some research and come back with a, a report on that, that would be fantastic. So it wasn't like walnut juice and you just No, gallnut. <laughs> it's, it said gallnut juice. Yeah. So um, I, I'm fresh out of gallnuts. <laughs> so, you know, I don't have any. So. All right. Moving along here. The script. Um, so the script is written in um, a, a unique script called Asherit. Um, and again, only that script is used in Torah scrolls. Uh, you cannot write, you can't print a Tanakh or a Humash or a Siddur or anything uh, using Asherit for the Hebrew. Uh, it's only allowed in Torah scrolls. So. Um, there's a there's a lot of um, specific laws and halachot uh, around how the letters are made, and that really starts to get into the aleph bet and all of that, which is you know really beyond the scope of this. But uh, just be aware that you know there's very specific ways that the letters are required to be formed. Uh, smudged or cracked letters can invalidate the entire scroll, so. Um, and of course, a scroll, if you've ever seen one, there is no vowel points. So if you think about that, you know, we all, of course, we're all, you know, Hebrew is not our, our first language, and so we're all struggling at various in very, you know, various degrees, just trying to read Hebrew, you know, from you know um, our Humash or Tanakh, whatever, with all the vowel points there. Okay? Imagine trying to, you know, now imagine reading from a scroll that has a unique uh, script where certain letters are elongated and things like that, um, and there's no vowel pointers. And the pronunciation has to be, has to be correct, right? So the statement in the, in the Apostolic writings, you know, rightly dividing the word takes on another level of understanding, you know. Um, the scribe uh, has to be Jewish. He has to be religious and God-fearing, uh, and known to be pious. So this is this is an interesting point because uh, an atheist who writes a Torah scroll, that Torah scroll is not. It's it has it has no sanctity. It is not kosher. Um, a secular Jew. You know, if you, ha if you had a sofer who was religious, so he learned how to do it all, and then he became an atheist or became secular, and then he writes a scroll later as, a, as, a, as a, an apostate, to use that word, that scroll that he writes later, even though he used the same technique, the same skill, etc., is not a kosher scroll. It's, it's, it's not valid for use. has no sanctity. You can do anything you want with that scroll. Um, because... The point here is that more than just the you know getting the words onto the scroll you know correctly and making sure it's all accurately 
redact, you know, copying and redacting, it's the intent of the person who's doing it plays a very important part uh, in that process. Um, yes. Modern scholarship could have learned a lot about that, right? Absolutely. Modern yeah. translations that had secular, absolutely, people openly. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, here, here's here's the thing. Here's the thing with that. The Torah commands the king to write two two scrolls, right? But if you do a little, uh, if you do a little study research on that, um, as it's as it's understood, okay, it doesn't mean that King David sat down and wrote in a complete Torah scroll by his own hand, because he would have to have the skill and the training and, you know, have to understand all of that stuff to really do that. So in practice, what would happen is a scribe would write, would, would write uh, almost all of the sheet, right? So there's 62 to 84 sheets per, per Torah scroll. He would write almost all of the sheet, and then he would save the last couple words or maybe the last verse or something, and the king would finish it. And, and, and even according to, to uh, the Mishnah, we know that some, uh, some, some priests, an occasional high priest, and, and most likely the kings at certain times in Jewish history weren't even literate. So uh, I, I think that's one thing we take for granted with the 21st century eyes. But, um, so I, I imagine having you know, a warrior king who's, who's, who's not, um, isn't capable of, of writing something this detailed. How much of this would have actually been in place, these requirements, at the time of King David, for instance? That's a great question. Um, and the short answer is, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. So, like, the, the, the body of, whoops, wrong button. The, the, right now, you know, there's approximately 4,000 laws. And, of course, that includes all the laws around how you form the letters and all that kind of stuff. So, um, how much of that was... Uh, was in place then versus has developed, you know, down through the centuries. Not sure. Not sure. Good question. With the process now, is it you start with the animal skins and score it, sew them all together, and then begin writing, and or do you do sheet by sheet, and then once the sheet is complete, then you attach it to the next one? What's the order? That, if they're all connected already, yeah. you mess one up. Like, yeah, no, I, I, I believe that you score a sheet, write the sheet, and then stitch it, and then and then you know, attach it. Although I would need to verify that, so I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's the order. So, um, good question. You guys got some, some good questions. Um, he, when he's making, when he's creating a new score, scroll, he has to be copying from an existing kosher scroll. And because of the rigor in which they, they go through, the process of the rigor they go through, the new one, when he finishes it, is deemed to be more authentic than the one he just copied from. And the reason for that is because in the event that there happened to be some error in the one he was copying from, most of the time he'll catch it in that process. 
So, what's that? It's essentially the copy editor and the writer. Yeah, essentially. I think it's important to note that in our world, that is absolutely backwards from what we do. If you sit down and copy something, by definition, your copy is just that, and it's inferior to the original. Right. And I just don't think we can appreciate. You suggested the men look and see how the scribes did their work. As, as you and I know, it's extraordinary. And, and maybe we can get get the the good rabbi if um, to enlighten us on that since he is a, a, yeah. a, a modern sofa. Yeah. So. To, to come out with an original, to make a copy that is now defined as an original. Right. And can be used to make more copies, to me is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, it, it's... But it's kind of like, as it, like we have in books today where you have like new editions, where you have like, um, even just as far as like a, 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 an initial article you write or a book you write, and then it goes to the copy editors for approval, the new version is going to be deemed more correct than the original, even though the author actually wrote the original, mm -hmm. because the new version is cleaned up, is straightened out, made sure everything is perfect. So I guess, I mean, it makes sense to me as a writer mm -hmm. that the new one would actually, if he's working, if, assuming he's doing it that particularly. Right. Yeah. That's also true in the case of textbooks, as new information becomes available. You have to think like, well, they discovered this new body part, therefore, all your medical textbooks have to be updated. They discovered this new thing in space, so all your science textbooks have to be updated. So it, it makes sense. But these two guys are safe. both talking about <laughs> computer-generated product. Mm -hmm. If you sit down and handwrite a copy of that book right there, nobody in their right mind would say that your copy is better than your It just doesn't happen. I mean, it's impossible. Right. And yet, it's the norm over here. Right. That's extraordinary. Um, he, must, he has to use his strong hand, so obviously that's typically going to be the right hand for most people. Uh, every day before he begins his work, he, he mikvahs because the sanctity of what he's doing is kind of you know, front, front, front of mind here. So every morning before he sits down to, to work, he goes to the mikvah first um, as a as a reminder of the purity and the holiness and the sanctity of the work that he's doing. Uh, anytime he comes to the name, right, the, the tetragrammaton in a verse, he has to stop, say a blessing, then he can write the name. So imagine if you have a verse where the name is, you know, in there two, three, four, five times, he's going to say five blessings before he finishes that verse because he's going to get to it, he's going to stop, he's going to say the blessing, he's going to go to the next couple words, he's going to get to the name again, he's going to stop, he's going to say a blessing. Again, just the, the, uh, the, the level of sanctity that, in, that they, in reverence for it, is, is impressive. Uh, components of a Torah scroll. Um, we have the. Can I get my first volunteer, please? Anyone? All right. If you want to just, um, you can just kind of come behind here and just kind of, just kind of hold that up so people can see. <laughs> Did you make one? No. <laughs> so. Um, 
So these are the basic components of a, of, a, of a scroll. You guys are probably pretty much familiar with this, although you may not know the Hebrew names, right? So you've got the, the rollers, which uh, in Hebrew are the atzechayim, or singular would be etzchayim, right, tree of life. So, um, and those, uh, you know, the atzechayim the, the um, are used very particularly in the Torah service and other, other things. Um, some scrolls uh, will have crowns like you see here. Um, it can be double crowns, one on each of the, uh, uh, you know, there's small ones there. It can be double crowns, or you may see one single crown that covers both of the, the rollers on top. Um, and that's a, a, a keter in Hebrew. Uh, the, uh, the robe or the cloak is uh, uh, commonly called the, the, the mantle, although there's another word, uh, I think it's, Parochet or something like that. There's another. There's there may be alternate words for some of these things, but um, mantle is kind of what it's typically uh, called. Um, and then we're going to undress the scroll in a little bit, but um, you know, holding the two rollers together is a is a belt, uh, a girdle. Okay. Um, and then some scrolls have a breastplate, like like this one does. Some don't. Okay. Uh, and then you have the pointer, uh, which is called the yad or the hand, and that's what the uh, the reader uses um, when he is reading from the scroll. He uses that to follow along uh, in, in the scroll. So, um, so those are the components that make up Torah scroll. Why a hand on the pointer? Why not just a pointer? I know there's a reason for it. I'm not familiar with it. Um. I don't know if I know the the, the reason. Uh, my uh, you don't touch the scroll with your bare hand, right? So it's it. I think it's. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you could probably find some you know elaborate you know. I think it's just simply uh, in lieu of since you can't use your own finger to follow along. We'll put we'll put a hand on the end of a stick, right, so that you can do you can accomplish the same thing. So I don't I don't think there's any like deep, you know. Uh, although I'm sure if you look hard enough, you could probably find somebody that's come up with a deep meaning to it. But okay, um, the sanctity of the scroll, um, and 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 really this applies to I would say uh, n not just the Torah, although the Torah we certainly should hold. Uh, in special regard, but this I think needs to be true um, for us with respect to any um, holy writing, whether it's your your Bible, your your Siddur, anything certainly that contains you know scripture um, in it. I think we should handle with care, right? Um, particularly the the <clears throat> the. Um, Torah, because at the end of the day, um, again, as we talked about, nothing magic, but what it represents is significant, and you know it, it represent should represent to us the living Torah, Messiah Yeshua, who, after all, was the Word that became flesh and tabernacled among us, according to 
John chapter 1, right? So when the, when the scroll is out, um, we should, in, in our minds, we should be thinking, okay, you know, the, the king is, is, is among us, right? It's not literally, uh, well, maybe literally, but you know, you know what I'm saying. It is symbolic of his presence um, among us. And so um, if any king or dignitary walked into the room, we would probably all behave a certain way, or at least we should, right? should be no different when the king of kings uh, is, is among us, right? Uh, who's got, uh, if you've got a Bible, somebody turn to Deuteronomy 13. When the Torah comes out of the ark, now we don't have an ark uh, for Bellator yet. Um, so, you know, we have, we have it sitting up here, this kind of, kind of quasi-ark, you know, and then for the Shabbat service, it's usually sitting over here, so it's easier to get to. Uh, but normally, you know, if any of you have ever been to a synagogue, has anybody not ever been to an actual synagogue? Okay, so David, David has it. Well, but you've been to HOI, and HOI has an ark, so you, so, uh, so normally the scroll is closed behind an ark. As soon as that ark opens, um, then the uh, congregants stand. And then certainly anytime the ark is out and being carried and moved around, um, the, the, I mean, sorry, the Torah, not the ark, is being carried or moved around, the congregants should be standing in reverence, okay? Um, and so, and that, that comes from, uh, the basis for that understanding comes from this verse in Deuteronomy. Does somebody have that? Um, yeah, sorry, it should be 13.4 unless I miswrote it on this. Do not hearken to the words of that prophet, which that dreamer of a dream, for Adonai your God is testing you to know whether you love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul. I think it's the next one. Oh, I'm sorry, is it 5? Well, it's, it's 4. Thank you. Jewish Bibles. And Adonai oh. your God. Uh, 4. I got it. And you shall walk after Adonai el Hechem and fear him and be shomer over his mitzvot and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and have devectus unto him. So, so did I get that verse wrong? No, that's right. What's it supposed to say? Well, no. I, oh, okay, so it's a different verse in a, in a Jewish publication. Okay. All right, sorry about that. Um, okay. Uh, so, standing when any time the, the ark is open or the Torah is being, you know, being carried, uh, it's customary, although not required, but typically you, you would expect, um, uh, in a, in a, if you're in an Orthodox community, they typically will not turn their back to the Torah out of respect. So, if I'm carrying the Torah, right, you're facing me, and if I walk by you, then you are turning with me and your eyes stay on the Torah um, until it is out of sight or until it is put down on the bema and comes to, comes to rest. Um, that is 
uh, again, not a requirement, but that's kind of a, 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 a custom. I think it's a great custom because I think it just, again, reinforces that notion of what this represents, right? Um, idle conversation should be, uh, should be limited. Um, you know, and that's, that's something that, at least in our community, um, we probably aren't careful enough about, in my, in my opinion, but yes, sir. So, so how should we fix that, Grant? Um, normally, we're standing up to kind of greet one another, yep. you know, give a, give a healthy Shabbat Shalom, good Shabbos to somebody. Yep. And yet you're walking around with the Torah. Yes. So you're way back in this corner over here, and there's people, you know, touching the Zitzim, doing that whole deal. Yeah. But I'm over here with Jonathan, and we're cutting up about you right. know, the fact that yesterday, you know, he, you know, got sloshed in the mud. So yeah. Well, well here's, here's what, what do you recommend? Here's here's what I think is common um, in in a, in synagogues that when the Torah is being paraded. Um, there's normally singing. There's normally singing, and uh, the men are following it. Now, granted, that's a little hard for us to do here because we, you know, we don't have a whole lot of room. So we've got some practical limitations. But that's that's how that's addressed typically. Is the reason there's no the reason there's no idle talk is because everybody's singing, you know. Um, so. Uh, and the men are following the scroll as it makes its way through the sanctuary. So. What's the song? What song do they sing? It can be anything. I mean, I don't think there's any, you know, it's whatever you want to sing. But. Kimitzion is a popular one because that comes right out of the Torah service. Right. But, so that's the way it's typically, typically addressed. Okay. So. Uh, so, so maybe in terms of our community, maybe we, maybe we attempt to incorporate the singing once the Torah has made its way back to the bima, then, then you, you know, then you Shabbat Shalom and. Um, I think I mentioned this already, but you would never, at any time you come up to the Torah or you're handling the Torah and it's undressed, you, you never touch the scroll, particularly if it's kosher, right? I mean, ours is not kosher, uh, so... But this is practice. But this is, yeah, exactly. So there, there's some reasons for that. One is just simple, simple respect and reverence. The other one's a very practical reason, and that is oils in your hand you know, absorbed into the parchment, then create issues with letters being smudged and things like that, and then. Or is it yellow? Right. It, yeah. Exactly. All kind of, yeah. So, so there's a lot of there's practical reasons as well as just you know just reverence and respect um, that you do not touch the scroll with your hand. That's one of the things that I've seen people do. And again, you know, I've seen. I won't name names because I won't embarrass anybody because. There's nothing to be embarrassed about because it dawned on me we've never really had a conversation about this, you know. So how can we expect anybody to know any better if we don't talk about it, right? Um, God forbid that if a scroll was ever dropped, whoever's present in the room when a scroll drops 
uh, should fast. Do you have to see it, or if you're just around? If if uh, if you're in the room, whether if you if if you're in the room, you know, chances are if you're if you're following bullet number three, you saw it, right? So uh, so if you're in the room. Everybody fast, certainly whoever dropped it. <laughs> Oy vey, right? I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's, I, I'm not sure what the common practice is, but you, you're supposed to fast as a way of recognizing that, man, we, we dropped the Torah, right? So, so to take a bullet for the scroll, I mean, you would yeah. dive to stop it from hitting the ground. If right? only so you can have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You can catch it without touching it with your bare hands. Well, well it should be. It should be. Uh, yeah, if it's being paraded, it's it's still dressed. Which brings that. Right, so you throw a grenade in the room. You throw a tourist roller. Everybody's diving. Okay. So now, before we move to the next slide. I do want to revisit one thing. I think we talked about this in Zadi class, but it's probably been two years ago. We got some new guys that have come in and whatever. Uh, your Bibles, your Tanakhs, your Sidarim, your Humashim, your your um, your Humash. Um, I seen guys putting them on the floor. I've seen guys put it on the table, and then they put their Onig plate on top of it, you know. I mean, again, they're just books. There's nothing magic about them. But on the other hand, they should hold a special place uh, in in our hearts and minds because of what they contain and what they represent. So I would encourage all of us to just let's be cognizant of that, right? Don't put you know, don't put your Bible, you know, at the bottom of the stack with all of your workbooks or textbooks or secular books that you're reading or whatever, business books. I mean, let's always have a consciousness about God, Messiah, and the Word of God. Amen? Amen. We talked um, a couple of weeks ago about not being alone with a woman, even in conversation. And we agreed that we would help one another if it happened at One, and we saw a man who was who had found himself alone with a woman in conversation, and we would go up and help him by just standing there, join ourselves into the conversation. Nobody gets embarrassed. There's no problem. The guy probably didn't do anything wrong. The woman didn't either. That's not the issue. In the same way, you see that someone has inadvertently forgotten and they've made the stack out of their books and it makes a nice little table and they get their own eggplant on top of it. You know, don't walk over like I would and go, moron, what are you doing with the car? <laughs> Better thing, you know, just kind of move his plate aside. Torah is on the top. You could put the Torah on top of the plate and swish his <laughs> Yeah, just kind of help him gently. Because um, remember, you know, we, we kid about it. 
but a tzaddik would never cause another tzaddik to be embarrassed. Remember, you know, at the end of this period over here, the, the Ga'anic period, uh, with Rabbi Gershom, uh, he made it clear that a tzaddik would never remind uh, a man of his former sins. And he was speaking of someone like us that came out of a background that was somewhat sketchy. So we should step to a high point. Yeah, so we should all hold each other accountable on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving along, so handling the, the Sefer Torah, uh, we're going to talk about removing it from the Ark, undressing it, uh, the rules for the Olay. Who knows what the Olay is? The person who's called up, the person making the aliyah, is the ole, okay? Um, and the gabai, or gabai, depending on your persuasion. Um, the gabai is the guy who calls up the olim, okay? By the way, what is the primary purpose of the gabai? Very good. The primary purpose of the goodbye is he should be, and, and in a lot, of, a lot of synagogues, there's actually multiple goodbye. Um, I don't know, I'm sure it's plural that way. Well, a lot of times you'll have a Baal Kore who is a designated reader who will cant you know, the Hebrew from the scroll. The, the Ole says the blessing, you know, the, the, the Baal Kore pants the Hebrew. The Ole says the blessing afterwards, right? right. Now, um, sometimes the, the Gabai and the Baal Kore are the same person, mm-hmm. but they don't, they're not always the same person. Um, and certainly if the Ole is able to cant the Hebrew, then they may be the reader as well. So, yes. Is the foreign Jews all shout for the leg when they call him up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <didn't. laughs> no, they say, Riva, Riva. <laughs> okay. Um, we're going to talk, we're going we're gonna to demonstrate Hagba. Who knows what Hagba is? Is that lifting? The lifting or raising. And Galila is the re rolling. Okay. Because there's some, there's some etiquette. There that we need to we need to talk about. Okay, so um, so let me get uh, let me get you you can you can give them a round of applause for participating. Yes. Let me get um, let me get Mr. Taylor. Um, so we're going to talk about removing the the Torah from from the ark. Okay. Now again, we don't have an ark here yet, okay? But um, somebody, you know, somebody will be designated to go get, you know, and remove the the scroll from the ark, okay? And it, it doesn't have to be the goodbye. It doesn't have to be the chazan. It doesn't, you know, it can be any person who's picked to do that, right? Who's who's got the honor to do it for that particular service. Um, when you know, and when you when you um, when you pick up the the scroll from the ark and and stand it upright, um, just kind of stand behind it like Joshua was doing, stand it upright. Okay, so just pretend you're the ark. So in the ark, it would be sitting upright like that. 
Okay? Um, and then let me have uh, Mr. Bartos come up. Okay? So let's say Mr. Bartos has been, um, has been given the honor to remove the scroll from the ark. Right? So when we get to that point in the, in the prayer service, um, he's gonna, he's, he would walk over to the ark, right? He would open it. Usually the ark is, you know, it's either a, a wooden encased box or sometimes it's just a box with a curtain, you know, so he would, or sometimes it's both, sometimes it has a curtain and a door, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, as he approaches, what are the, what's the rest of us going to do? We're going to stand up, right? Now, um, de depending, you know, again, de de depending on, you know, kind of the local, you know, every little synagogue has slight, you know, different communities have slightly different customs. But typically uh, what's going to happen is he's going to remove it um, and then carry it to the, uh, uh, to give it to the um, chazan, right? Or sometimes he'll remove it, hand it to somebody else who will carry it to the chazan. So there's different, you know, different different um, customs, none of them are, you know, there's no wrong or right. Uh, I like the idea of getting more people involved, right? So when he goes to pick it up, when it's dressed, you know, and, and there's no, re there's no need, to, need to be afraid of the scroll, right? I mean, it's not going to, it's not going to bite, um, it's not going to break, hey, I you know. Right, right. You open that bad boy up, and it was over. That's right. It's not going to work. So you don't. Uh, I mean, we need to treat it with reverence and due care, as we've already talked about. But it's not going to break. I mean, so you can. You at this point, if it's dressed and it's in the ark, you can grab it around the side, right? Pick it up, and then let's assume he's going to hand it to me. So he doesn't have to grab it by the staves. He can actually hold it like. He can, he can pick it up that way, right? Now, now the other thing to keep in mind is we're using this, okay? If we have it when, when, when we have a kosher scroll, a kosher scroll is probably twice yeah. tall and it's much heavier, right? Because it skins and it's, so it's, it's heavier when, if you've got a real scroll, right? This one is pretty easy to move around. It's not heavy. But he can pick it up that way, um, or he can pick it up by the, by the, let's say, Chaim. Right, um, but he doesn't have to. So, but the key thing is when he hands it to either the person who's going to take it to the chazan, or if he's bringing it to the chazan, right? Um, if you'll notice, bullet point number three, he always places the sefer Torah on the right shoulder of the chazan, or whoever you're handing it to. So, and, and this this has happened to me um, before. Different guys were, were playing this role, and they hand it to me, and they hand it to me on this side, or they just kind of hand it to me like kind of cattywampus or whatever. You know, it is it is your responsibility to come up and place it on my right shoulder. Okay, when you and and you always put it on the right shoulder of whoever you're hand, handing it to. Okay, um, yeah, make sure. Yeah. Make sure you're not handing it upside down. That actually has happened to me before as well. So, you know, make sure you're handing it properly and you're always putting it on the person's right shoulder, okay? Um, and, and then a, a lot of times, too, I, I think I've got a bullet. I forgot to mention it. But a lot of times 
when uh, when you are taking it out of the scroll or out of the arc, I should say, customary. You know, after this, was customary. You know, kiss it with your tali through your zitzi, whatever. Again, just as a as a just a sign of reverence and you know, always wanting the word of God to be you know in our mouth and on our lips. I mean. So for those that are not with us tonight, you may be seated. By the way, this is this is just. For those that are, yeah. uh, are listening, as, as you're doing this with, with Greg and, and, uh, and, and, and doing uh, this show for um, when Greg handed it to you, it was handed front side out to you, not with the Right, yeah, don't, that. exactly. You always hand it front side out. Don't make the person you're giving it to have to turn it around and all that. Because, you know, it's just bad form, and if you're doing that, then you run the risk, higher, probably, you know, higher chance that somebody drops it if they're kind of fumbling with it, you know. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so then uh, it, will, it, it will be placed on the Bema um, and, um, and be ready to be un, undressed, right? So, and this, this obviously would be after... The initial uh, prayers for those of you familiar with the Torah service, and we do the procession. When it comes back, the husband's going to put it on the bima, right? And that's when it will get undressed and, and be ready to be read from, you know, as we begin the, the, the Torah service. Um, and then a similar process at the end when we're when we're taking it and putting it back in the ark. Okay. Um, undressing the Torah. Okay, now. Again, one person can probably do it with this because it's just so small and it's not heavy. But if we, when we have a, a, a real scroll, it requires two people minimum to undress it. Okay, so um, uh, so what we'll do is let me get two more volunteers, uh, Johnny May, okay, and Gideon. So. What will happen is um, one of you will one of you would would um, lift the lift it off the table enough. You, you can hold it upright if you want, or you don't have to. Just lift it off the table. And, and, well, actually, sorry. First, you would remove the uh, crowns if you have removable crowns. Ours doesn't. Um, you'd move the crowns. You'd set them to the side. Uh, then you would take off the the yod. Okay, and the breastplate, because those are, you know, on the outside. Um, so why don't you guys do that? Take one of you take off the yod. And then and and then the other one can take off the breastplate. And what you would do is just lay them neatly to the side. Doesn't matter which side, but yeah, just lay them neatly. Then um, one of you would hold the the bottom of the uh uh and then the other one just pulls the pulls the uh, mantle off. Just yeah, just pull it right off the top. Okay, let you lay that down. And then before he sets it down, you would then take off the the girdle, the belt. Okay. All right. Now you lay the scroll back down on the bima. Okay. And again, we're we're not touching it at, at all at this point. Uh, and then once once you've undressed it, you take the mantle. And just lay it back on top. Have you guys ever seen me like lay it back on top? Ever wonder why I'm doing that? Okay. Again, it's it's 
it's a sign, it's just a, it's a sign of respect and reverence because the Torah is precious, okay? It's kind of like, here's an analogy. Um, why is it that we're instructed for a married woman to cover her hair? Well, it's a, it's a sign that she's under someone's authority, but, but her hair is, is her glory, right? According to 1 Corinthians 11. And her, the glory is only for her husband, right? So she's, she's in public, she's veiled until it's time to not be veiled, right? It's kind of the same, similar idea. In other words, the, the Torah should stay, you know, even after it's undressed, we, we lay the mantle back over it while it's, while it's laying stationary um, just to keep it, um, keep it protected for one, but keep it veiled until it's ready to be used, okay? Um, so you would, yeah, you would, perfect. You put that there, you would just lay the, the belt to the side neatly, and you've undressed the Torah scroll, okay? Now again, it's, it's, it's a little harder when you've got a full-size scroll. I mean, it's really easy with a small one, but... Um, the, the, either the uh, Gabai, the Baal Kore, or sometimes both will, before, actually before they put them, lay the mantle on it, they'll open the scroll, verify that it's positioned in the right, you know, for the right reading, right, the right location for the Parsha that, for that service. And then they'll, they'll roll it, you know, they'll roll it back up and they'll put the mantle on it. Okay? Um, so, rules for the OLA and the goodbye. Um, and anytime you're coming up to the Bema, you need to be wearing a kippah and a talit. Okay? Um, in the unlikely event that you don't have a kippah, um, there's probably extras, or you borrow somebody's temporarily if you need to. But if last resort, you can always just pull your talit over your head. Okay. Um, I could add some other thoughts about about uh, about that, but I'm not just for sake of time. Yeah. Um, respect, reverence. The keeper is always has always been understood as the presence of God over us, right? So it's a reminder that some, we have um, there's somebody higher over us, right? That's the whole point of a of a keeper. Um, and the uh, the the talit, the prayer shaw, you know, we're commanded to. Uh, to wrap ourselves in in zitzit, and that's just the tr a traditional way that we we do it. So. So the keep was a sign of respect, but the talit is a commandment. Or more saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So one is yeah. tradition, or you ought to well, respect. they're both tradition. There's no commandment in the in the Torah to wear a kippah. No, but there is to wrap yourself in the talit. Well, there is to wear zitzit. Zitzit, and the talit right. is to do it. You can also wear them. Absolutely, 
and back in New York. That's what I always knew as a yarmulke. And though that's a compound word, yar, malka, yare, fear, <coughs> malak, king. So it's a fear, you're wearing it for fear of the king, as a respect for the king. That's, that's what it's like. Mm -hmm. I, I do want to make a note that if you're heading to the Bema and you're wearing a hat, I will stop you. If the goodbye doesn't stop you, I will stop you. I'll give you my Toledo, my Kipa if I have to. I but I don't want you to go up to the front with a, with a hat on. Really? No. I just, you know, you wear a hat outside. That's what, what we wear on the street. What were the Hasidim where? Actually, the, 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 the Balcore, the guy who's reading all the time, he's got uh, his, his toilet's always over his head. So. It's, a, it's a different level of sanctity. Yeah. Just as we have been taught and read in the Torah about being around and closer yeah. to the tabernacle uh, in the wilderness and so forth, and the closer you get, the, the more important it is. So, yeah, I, I praise God that you guys are covering your heads. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's not a command. It's great. But when you're here for a Torah service, that middle drawer is filled normally with extra kippot, so that if you, you know, came with a hat, if you don't have a kippah, although uh, I noticed, you know, Greg will normally come with a hat and takes off the hat, he's still got a kippah, you know. So if you need one, anybody in the room will give you a kippah if you go forward. Thank oh, you, guys. Oh, I was just asking what you said, the... Um, you know, it's, it's not that hard to sort of keep on up underneath whatever headpiece you choose to wear. Yeah, but if you forgot, we got plenty. I mean, we, we have extra tallit, we have extra tallitone, we have extra kippot, um, so that we can maintain that respect. Um, the goodbye, you guys should all know this already uh, because it's, it's explicitly stated in the Torah service, but the goodbye has to, must, give the first aliyah to a Kohen if one is in the room. Uh, if there's no Kohen, he must give it to a Levi if there's a Levite in the room. Uh, and then if not, it's, you know, it's uh, whatever he wants to do. So, uh, although traditionally it's, you try to, you try to give the Aliyot to uh, uh, people who maybe have a special thing going on, just married, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, anniversary, visiting, you know, you know whatever, right? Yes. As a sign of like respect, respect and honor. And, like, right. On the spot. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So. And, and uh, the audio is that it, that's not only for the men, right? Any anyone could do it, or is it only the men that can come up to read? Only in a Torah service, only men are called to the Torah, unless it's the, unless it's a bat mitzvah. Right. So, uh, for example, Andrea, uh, my my daughter is about to have her bat mitzvah at the end of September. So she'll be called, she'll get the first aliyah because it's, it's the day we're going to honor her. Uh, it may be one of the only times in her life that she'll ever be called to the Torah in a Torah service. So it's a, it's a cool thing, right? Or reforming conservative Judaism. Yeah, right. Um, so um, let's say that, um, let's say that David Nixon has been given uh, uh, an aliyah, so he is going to be an ole, right? So David Nixon is going to come up. He's going to borrow somebody's kippah. And when he comes up, 
Okay, so by this time, by this time, by this time, the, the mantle will have been taken off by the the goodbye or somebody, and so um, let me move this a little closer here for you. So what will happen is when you come up as the OLA now, you know, because we don't read from the scroll because none of us are proficient enough in Hebrew yet, right? We're reading from a chumash or a you know whatever, but. What you would normally do, or what you should, what we should be doing, is that when the OLA come, when he's called up, he's going to find the shortest route up there, right? We we all know that. And when he gets up to the bima, he's going to grab both of the atzei um, chaim, uh, you know, in, with with both hands. Just go ahead and grab them. And then he is he's going to uh, go ahead and keep it on the table, and he, and then he's going to uh, open it up, you know. He's going to open it up somewhere. The, either the Gabai or the Baal Kore will point out to him where the reading begins. Okay? And then he would take his talit and he, or zitzi and he would touch where the reading begins, kiss it, okay? um, and then he would close the scroll. So go ahead and close the scroll. Okay? At this point, he's ready to say the, the blessings. Now he closes the scroll, and then traditionally he's either going to he's either going to say the blessings with his eyes closed, or he's going to look to the left or the right. The reason for that is we don't want anybody to think that we're reading the blessings out of the scroll, because they're not in the scroll, right? So we never want to leave the give the impression that we're reading something in, in the Torah that's not there, right? Um, so he would normally recite the blessing. So he would say, you know, he'd say the first Baku, the congregation responds, right? And then actually, if you if you look at your Siddur, he repeats the second, you know, so he would say, Baku Taranai Hamvarak, Baruch Taranai Hamvarak Leolam Vaed, Baruch Taranai So then he goes into the blessing before. So he normally would repeat the second blessing after the congregation has said it. Okay, um, we we don't do that. Which they did uh, for those of you who went to uh, uh, the Pullman's uh, bar mitzvah two years ago. They their cousin uh, mm -hmm. did that. Yeah, that it, it's right there in the center. Right. It it, it it at least for Ashkenazi custom. Right. Uh, some of these customs may be a little bit different if you're in a Sephardic shul. So, uh, so he's going to close scroll. He's going to say the blessing. He's going to say the Baku. Uh, the congregation is going to respond. He's going to repeat what the congregation says. Then he's going to read the. He's going to recite the blessing before. Okay. Then he's going to. At this point, you're holding the. You're holding the the Atzechaim the whole time. He's saying the blessings. Okay. Then once he's done, he's going to step to the side. So step that way. Okay. Take your left hand, hold the right eschain, um, okay, and then either whoever's reading from the scroll, the Baal, whoever's playing the role of Baal Kore, will open the scroll, cant the Hebrew, okay. So he's so the Baal, Baal Kore would open the scroll, right? He would cant the Hebrew. When he's done canting the Hebrew, the Olay would then touch where the end of the reading is, kiss it. Okay, right? Then roll the scroll back up, 
and then um, and then do the blessing after. Okay. So, so for 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 the, the Gentile noobs uh, like me, in our service, as you pointed out, since we're not doing it from the Hebrew. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're going. The the scroll is this way, not that way. Mm-hmm. We're going around past it. Yeah. So let's let's come up with a halakha for our community. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the obviously you know the ole? Uh, I mean the goodbye. I'm noticing he's pointing out where it begins. Mm-hmm. Many of the men are. Which which Peter, who's normally our goodbye. He does that, yeah. you know, even in the Hamash, he'll typically says it's, it's here, that. yeah. So, I have noticed some of the men touch with their zinzi and kiss that. Mm-hmm. Um, so That's a trick, I mean, you yeah, don't we, have to, but it's just, yeah. But we know we're just trying to, you know, get a handle here. So, right. do you think that the man at that point, the Oleg, should look left and do the barcode? Um, I think in our community, because many of us are still learning, and so we have our little a little card that's you know there. Um, I think we allow whoever needs to read, look down and read that to do that. You know, okay. if you know it by heart and you're confident, if you wanted to look left or right or just want to close your eyes, that's fine. So closing your eyes is fine. Yeah, okay. absolutely. The, the whole point is you just don't. We don't want anybody to, who's sitting in the back of the shore thinking, is he reading that out of the scroll? I don't remember reading that in the scroll. Okay. You know. So then at the end, he gets to the end. He knows where the end is by has shown. So then, again with the ZC, and then the blessing. Right. Yep. Um, That's for each aliyah? Yep. And and the key is, the key thing is, you're holding those atzechayim when you're doing the blessing, right? Because, again, it's what it represents, right? We are taking hold, as it were, to the word of God and everything that it represents. So, okay. So now we get to thank you, Mr. Nixon. Give me a round of applause. Keep that keeper looks good on you, by the way. So, um, all right. So now we get to hagba. Everybody say hagba. Okay, which means lifting or raising. So, at the end of the um, Torah service, after the the last alley, actually after the maftir, right? We then do uh, the vazot, right? So somebody will be asked to be the the hagba for that service, okay? So, uh, so, and that person, by the way, in Hebrew is called the magbiah. So if you are the one who gets the honor to lift the Torah, you are the magbiah for that service, okay? And imagine it's they always joke around that like the Jewish. Olympics is always just like which rabbi can, can hold the scroll up the longest yeah. and then and stuff. And that's that's actually when when you you have the most risk of, of dropping it or of even tearing it. That's yeah, so much that's an important. Well, problem. and and if you look here, um, so when and we're gonna we're gonna demonstrate this in a minute, but let me walk through the points and then we'll do a demonstration. So when the maviyah comes up, he's gonna open the scroll. So there's a minimum of three columns of text showing and he's going to want to try to get the seam in the middle okay because as Jonathan was just pointing out if 
you know, it, in some of these scrolls are old. I mean, some of these scrolls can be a couple hundred years old, right? So they can start to get fragile and they just wear out over time, right? If it's going to tear, most of the time it's going to tear along that seam, right? And when you have it open and you're holding it up, where's it weakest? It's going to be weakest in the middle of that, of the, you know, of the scroll, right? And so you want the seam to be in the middle so that in the event that it does tear, it'll tear down the seam, it can be easily repaired. Okay? Uh, so, <laughs> right. so, uh, so you'd open up the scroll while it's on the Bema to get your three columns, you know, shift it a little bit if you need to to get your seam in the middle, right? Then um, holding both of the Atsechayim, uh, uh, you're going to slide the the scroll off of the beam. In fact, Jonathan, can you de uh, let's let's demonstrate this. So here, let's let's do it from side view so everybody can see. Okay. So he's going to um, here. Uh, well, yeah, we got the other way. So here we go. So um, he's going to open the scroll to get us three columns of text showing. Okay. And he's going to try to get a seam in the middle, right? Now, again, imagine this is big, bigger and heavier. He's going to slide it about halfway off the bema, okay? Um, and then he's going to bend his knees, push down, use the bema as a fulcrum, you know, as a fulcrum to uh, get leverage, and then just stand straight up and extend your arms, right? So, again. For those who haven't seen it, I just don't think they realize a true Torah scroll you know, weighs between 100 and 150 <laughs> and it's ginormous. And it's even worse when you're like in Deuteronomy. Yeah, where it's all on one side. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, uh, keep, uh, so, one more time. Halfway off, bend, and then stand up and extend the arms, right? And then you want to make sure you turn around, and then you're going to rotate left, rotate right, so that the, the goal here. Oh, careful. Oh, I the goal here is you want to give everybody in the congregation an opportunity to see the, to, to see the scroll, right? And this is, of course, we're, we're saying the vizot, right? So vizot, hatzorat, all that. Okay, so now, uh, so that's the that's hadba, that's the the raising. Okay, now once the vizot is done, okay, then he's going to bring his arms down, okay, and we move to Galila, uh, 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 keep keep it there. We're gonna move to Galila, which is the rolling. Okay, who has not participated yet? All right, Isaac, come here. So what he's gonna do is he's going to sit down in a chair that is close proximity to the bima, and he's going to. And as he's sitting down, here, stand up one more time. Again, without having a heavy scroll, it's kind of hard to visualize why this is important, but. As he sits down, you're going to grab the top of the Atsechayim to help just balance the scroll as he sits. Okay, He's going to put his hands on his knees, and then you're going to roll it. He's going to roll from the bottom. You're going to roll from the top. Okay, Roll it together till it's good and tight. Okay, Then you're going to grab the girdle, the belt. Some belts are Velcro. Some have a clasp. The, the, whatever, the, whatever it is, whether it's a clasp or, or the Velcro, Always goes on the inside facing the um, the golel, which is the name for the person. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the magbiyah. He's the golel. The one re-rolling is golel, and he's the magbiyah who did the lifting. Okay. 
Then, um, once you've put the belt on, the belt should be, you know, somewhere between halfway to two-thirds of the way up the scroll, right? Then you're going to grab the mantle. Um, you're going to put the you're going to put the mantle on. Then you're going to grab the, the breastplate. Breastplate goes over both of the it's 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 atzechayim. Okay. Then you're going to grab the yad. The yad always goes on the right etzchayim uh, as it as as it faces you. Okay. So if you're the golel, it's going to be the left one for you because it's the right as if you're facing it. So when I pulled the when we pulled the scroll off the off the shelf t tonight, the yad was on the wrong side. Okay, so and then if there were crowns, you put the crowns on. Okay, then um, at that point, he has the the go the golel has re-rolled and redressed the Torah. Right. Um, traditionally, you would then also kiss the Torah as a sign of respect, and then the gabai or somebody would bless you know re give the blessing for the uh, for Hagban and Galila. Then you. Um, Stand, put the uh, scroll back on the bima, or or, or to the, give it to the chazan. Okay. Yep. Every time that I've seen this done, there's usually some men around there because if you try to lift from your legs 100, 150 pounds straight up, mm -hmm. you're going to have a problem. Plus, how do you stabilize it? It's not really 100. It's not really 150 pounds, but it is heavy. It's not quite, but it's, 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 heavy. it's very it's, heavy. It's at like 75 pounds. I've always seen an old man standing by just Yeah, because it's heavy, especially if you got an old guy that's doing it. Yeah. So now I have to understand why there's a blessing for the guy who holds the Torah and who holds the Torah, because that was kind of a big deal. It is a big deal. Uh, I've been in synagogues where they got a, an old man they're trying to, an older man that they're trying to honor, and they, they have him raise it up. And before the blessings are all done, he, you know, because we're seeing the bazook, and he is shaking, you know, and you've got guys going over there grabbing him. They don't want to grab it, but they're grabbing him and arms and everything. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a Moses moment, yeah. Um, now, one, one distinction between Ashkenaz and Sephardic, a lot of times in Sephardic communities, the Torah scroll is in, in a hard encased thing. It's not in a it's not in a mantle. It's actually it's in a like a box type thing. You open the box and it's it's there. So they'll lift up the box. Uh, the other thing is Sephardic tradition. You actually do the vazot before the Torah reading. So they hold they do they do Hagba and vazot. In other words, they lift it up and and say this is the Torah, right? And then they read it. So Ashkenazi does it after the reading. So, whatever. All right, uh, la I think this is the last slide, or close to the last slide. Uh, transferring and discarding a Torah scroll. Okay, so uh, if you're transferring a Torah from one location to another, it is preferred that somebody holds it the whole time. Okay? You know, so if you were going to drive a Torah scroll from, you know, the Squitcherini residence to the new Spurlock residence, uh, since we're all meeting there for High Holy Days and everything, uh, then ideally somebody would be sitting in the car, you know, holding the scroll the whole time. That would be pref preferable. If you had to 
Uh, if that wasn't practical for whatever reason, or if you had to ship a scroll long distance, then you know you can do that. You just take you know extra care to make sure it's it's packaged uh, safely and securely. Um, if if you're moving a, a scroll from one shul to another, uh, traditionally you like to have a, a minion of, of men accompany the transfer of that scroll to the new to to the new shul. Uh, uh, once a scroll reaches the end of its life, and by the way, these things last for hundreds of years if they're if they're cared for and maintained properly. But once it reaches the end of its life, you know. Uh, letters start to fade, it gets dried out, it cracks or whatever, and it's no longer kosher. Um, you cannot just put it in the dumpster, you can't burn it, you can't just throw it in a corner, okay? You bury a scroll. So it would be put in a waterproof um, container um, and it would be buried and normally they try to bury a scroll with uh, a zarik with a talmid hacham. So, when uh, an elder or a Torah, you know, a rabbi or a Torah scholar or somebody passes, they will oftentimes, if they have a scroll that's ready to be retired, they will put the scroll in a in a waterproof container and they will put that in the grave with the zarik and it gets buried. In the box with the, uh, I don't think so, but I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think so. It just goes in the in the ground. So. Now, what exactly is the use? Do they still use the Giza? Like, like the sort of the archive of the scrolls that are ready to go? Um, I mean, I know that like if you go to um, like, like an archaeological site, mm -hmm. they'd have like a room or a closet or something where they would store like the old scrolls. Mm -hmm. Because they're they're sanctified, right. right? They've been it's an offering, it's a prayer offering to God, right? So you can't just haphazardly just discard that stuff. Yeah, I was so. about that because the only place I know of uh, uh, locations of Genesis have always been in the Middle East. So I was wondering if that was that might be just as a party custom. I'm like, I'm not positive about that. So I was like, like honestly, I have some times wondered like, okay, I have I have this, I have. For example, an old kumash that's ready to be retired, and I'm kind of wondering what to do with it. Um, it, it, it literally has God's name written in it, um, in the whole Hebrew, everything. Currently, it's sitting in a box in my house. I don't really have anywhere well, else to put it. That's exactly what the Geniza was. Right. It was just a place sanctified that you would put those types of objects. Right until they could be properly disposed of. And that time may never come because the place they were in was so far. Um, I don't know what the custom is these days to, to, to do with a printed, bound copy like a Tanakh or a Kumash. It would be cool to find out, though. Yeah. Okay. What I want to do, do I need to do anything special or will this play? I think it'll just play. We'll oh, probably okay. jack the sound. There's okay. a button on the keyboard. You may have a scene. I want to demonstrate something to you. 
Okay. Now, what I want to let me tee this up. Okay. Um, I'm going to play a 10-minute. It's it's 14 minutes, but we're only going to watch the first 10. Okay. This is a um, video clip of a service at a uh, at I think it's called New Hope Church. I think New Birth, New Birth something like that. Uh, which is a, a large church in Atlanta. Uh, the the pastor, the senior pastor there, is uh, Bishop Eddie Long. Okay, this happened. This uh, particular event we're about to watch happened. Uh, I think it was last year, if memory serves. This person, this gentleman here, is um, his name is Ralph Messer. Okay, he is uh, he he refers to himself as a Messianic rabbi. He uh, oversees a congregation in the Denver area called Beit Simchat Torah, I think is what it's called. Okay, um, so he was a guest speaker at uh, Pastor Eddie Long's church in Atlanta, and he he's about to present. Um, he's he's about to go through a little ceremony and present the pastor with a Torah scroll. Okay, so. What I want to do is I want to watch this 10-minute segment. I want you guys to pay attention, maybe even have some pen and paper ready, okay? And I want you to I want you to think about what he's doing with the scroll in the context of what we've just talked about, and then we'll debrief after this after the 10-minute segment. This guy's name is Chuck Ralph. Ralph. Rabbi Messer. He Rabbi Ralph Messer is he's a he's a messianic rabbi. Okay, so here we go. Jews in the world have never even seen, came close, nor touched 
the scroll because these are kept in arcs behind eternal lights to meet. This is called the seams. Every one of us was a lamb that had to die, like Jesus did. It takes three and a half years to write a scroll by a silver. Jesus started his ministry at age 30. He died at age 33 and a half. It takes three and a half years to write one. Jesus called himself the Devar Elohim, the Word of God incarnate. He called himself the eternal government of God. And these are only given to cities that need to be released into a new anointing. citizenship of Israel on behalf of the Jewish people, the land of Israel, and the God of Israel. I want to make a presentation. Praise God. Amen. Bishop, you will come. Bishop, you will come. Praise God. Praise God. He's a king. God's blessed him. He's a humble man. But in him is kingship. In him is royalty. Adam was the land of Israel. Adam was a king chromosome of that of Colin Coney. He was brought through the slaves, raised up in a city. And God now wants to release a new anointing. We're in a different season, ladies and gentlemen. You'll come, Bishop. Thank you so much, sir. Bishop, you'll turn and face this. He now looks as one who was once a slave, and his ancestors were once slaves. He's the first man in 3,500 years of his bloodline to return back to the original, seeing the original scroll, seeing the original letters. There are 22 letters on an Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 pairs of chromosomes in your body. The 23rd was added by man. There are 22 amino acids. On Psalms 22, it was written at Calvary. Jewish doctors say when you look at a microscope, your cells in your body look exactly like script Hebrew letters. There are crowns because this is God's government. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. And Yeshua said, Do not think that I come to do away with my government, my Torah, but to bring it to a greater understanding. For those who teach the Torah, as he will be released to, we consider great in great in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, my country on the earth. For those who speak against him, we consider least in the kingdom of God, least in the kingdom of earth. Ladies and gentlemen, if you turn Bishop towards me, and we're going to now surround This is only, this is done in the kings of Israel. He's surrounded, risen in the air. He now, wrap him, wrap him in the scroll, real slow, real slow, real slow. He's wrapped in the word of God. He's sealed by the blood of Messiah. He is sealed to come out with a new anointing. The kingship of him, the power of him is going to come out. And it doesn't matter where you go. This is done to every king. Whip it up, and he's hidden in the word of God. He is hidden in the word of God. These are called trees. H. Kain. He sits between two courtrooms. Justice and blessing. I speak life over you. I speak life. As a Jew, I speak life over you. Let it be assured. Show you something. Roll it up. Put the cover on it. Crazy guy. 
Now, um, <laughs> so this man basically, okay, he's done. You can't even comprehend what you've seen there, okay? When I first saw it, to me, and I hate to say this, is he's a waste of skin. He's worse than Benny Hinn, in my opinion, what he's done. And I didn't know anything about Hebraic roots movement or whatever, but I knew enough to, to know what I saw. So the reason I the reason I wanted to show this particular clip is you know I don't know quote unquote Rabbi Ralph Messer never met the guy you know I'm not going to stand up here judge the intent of his heart or whatever because that's not my position that's not your position but what I want to do is so let's not focus on the personality that was involved there. Um, there are there are a couple things that I think will 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 probably come out. But what I want to do is I want to get some thoughts. What in that we watched about eight and a half minutes there. What, based on what we just discussed, what did you see that was done wrong? That was done right? Uh, what did you see that made sense? Did not make sense? 
etc. Greg. So I think the biggest deal was there was a higher regard for the man than the book or the scroll. For, for, the, for the bishop. Yeah. So he was, in your view, he was elevating the bishop above the, yeah, the like word of God. It seems there was less care taken in, in the whole process than it was, you know, no one really touched mm -hmm. him and they, they, they touch, they don't even touch him, they touch the chair that he's on, you know, but someone was behind like with their hands all over the scroll, so it just seemed... Okay, so you saw people putting their hands on the scroll. Yeah. Okay. Taylor? Um, first thing, when they brought the scroll out, it was on this guy's left shoulder. Good. Nice. Uh, when it was first coming out, and I mean, there's a lot of things I could say that are wrong. I don't want to take other ideas. But, um, it was never placed on the beam. Uh, it remained just kind of among the two guys, which, I mean, I suppose is fine in its own right, but it needs to be unrolled properly and undressed properly. That was not done at all. They just kind of started taking stuff, flying stuff off, mm -hmm. and it was never redressed properly. Okay. Uh, what did you notice specifically about that, about no, the redressing? The belt wasn't... They had put they had put the mantle on and put it in the lap of the bishop, and then it gave him the belt, right? So they hadn't even put the belt back on before they put the mantle on. Okay, uh, Joshua. Um, well, one thing that I thought right away was that he had some weird names for. I believe he called the mantle the foreskin, <laughs> which. Um, what what, I don't what think is, that was a misspeaking? What is he trying to do there? He's trying to allegorize everything. He's allegorizing it. What's he allegorizing specifically for? Circumcision, right? right. Okay. Uh, is the mantle ever called a foreskin anywhere no. in Jewish tradition? Well, besides the fact that the foreskin is a bad thing. I mean, I think he hasn't been reading very much of the Torah, but everywhere it says that's, that's the part you take off. Right. And throw what? Yeah. And throw it to feet of Moses. Yeah. That was off the hinges. To I, say I the least. But then also, like, his back, he keeps turning his back to it over. And then when they wrapped the bishop in it, which was just kind of. Uh, okay, so let's talk, let's, let's talk about. The bishop was actually sitting. Let's. Uh, yeah. Right. So let's talk about the, the wrapping. What did he say specifically about the wrapping that supposedly gave it credible? Right. So he said that the kings of Israel were always wrapped in the Torah scroll. Okay. That's a lie. That is a lie. There's nowhere in any Jewish tradition, any Jewish source anywhere, or, or certainly not in Scripture, but there's nothing in Jewish tradition that says that was ever happened, that ever happened, okay? So, um, as, far as, I, as far as I'm concerned, unless somebody can prove me wrong, that was a fabrication just for the, sen sens just for the sensation of it, right? Uh, other thoughts, comments? I didn't see anything did right. I didn't see one thing wrong. Right. One thing in there did not see wrong. The only thing I didn't see that was right, even though he wasn't standing and he was probably not, you know, the one reading or the mm -hmm. one guiding, is that they did put it on the right side of. Okay. When he sat down, they did place it on his right shoulder. Okay. Yeah. Other thoughts? He was wearing no keep. The rabbi Messer was wearing no keep. Right. Well, it's a church. You wouldn't expect the Gentiles to be wearing kippah. But what did he describe himself as? A, a rabbi. 
Well, he said, I'm a Jew. He said, I have, I have dual citizenship in Israel and the U.S., okay? And what did he say? He said, on behalf of the Jewish people and the, and the nation of Israel, I'm doing this. So he's holding himself out as representing the entirety of, you know, of, of the Jewish people and the, and the, and the, and the family of Israel. Uh, other thoughts? At, at least they weren't trying to do it like as an individual. You know, I mean, and they had multiple, multiple people helping and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that, you know, obviously. But with a scroll of that age, I would be concerned that perhaps by that time, I, I don't know what the, the life expectancy, as it were, of them is, but um, could be that the scroll was already beginning to write down letters could be beginning to fade it you know, yeah it's a priceless treasure and everything like that but you know how long is it going to be in use I mean, what about he made a statement about how long it takes to, to write a scroll what did he say is that true no what, what what how long does it take to write a scroll about nine months nine months to a year maybe a little longer than a year if you're slower does not take three and a half years to write a Torah scroll. So again, he's making that up so that he can create this this connection to Yeshua that 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 doesn't exist and is not needed. Yeshua is the Torah. That's all you need to know. You don't need to come up with all of these. You know, you don't need to Christianize and messianize all of that. Right? Which, of course, the, I'm willing to bet donuts to dollars that that scroll was probably cowhide and not lamb. Because that's the more common. That's the more common. You know that for sure it wasn't a lamb per panel. Right. Since you've got to go from stitch to stitch, that's one animal piece. Yeah. You can't get two columns to be from two animals. Unless you get a senior. By the way, he said there were 39 yeah. uh, panels. Right. It was less than a half, right? Right. That's, that's wrong because the standard is between 62 and 84. Okay. So, again, he, what did he say? There's 39 panels, and by, by, the, by his 39 stripes were healed. Okay. Say that man 
has made a mistake. Well, we should it, be the ones to help his hearers. The, the reason, at the end of the day, why I wanted to show this to you is not only to give us an opportunity to see somebody use a Torah scroll or misuse a Torah scroll and be able to recognize now that we've been taught, right? But there's something else bigger here, okay? That guy is also holding himself out. He, he refers to himself as a Messianic rabbi. So he is representing all of us as well who are lumped into that messianic messianic Judaism whatever however you want to you know label that and again I'm not going to judge the guy's intent because who I don't know and that's up to God but I will say this um, it is no wonder that you know uh, that the traditional Jewish community looks at that and says, and you want me to you want me to follow you want me to follow this you know Jesus that you're espousing and and you know and the very thing that they hold dear you know you know uh, the thing that they hold more dear other than God Himself is a Torah scroll and you're just like you know and flat out lying on about stuff right. And he's, and he's representing Yeshua, right? So I wanted to bring this out because um, there is a lot of people uh, in Hebrew roots, Messianic, whatever, right, that, that love God, love Yeshua, well-intended, but they are making a mockery of without even realizing it. Or he may realize it and not care, but yeah, right. So, I just want to say that um, to me, everything we covered prior towards uh, to watching the video, the just the, the intent and the the, the the carefulness that we're. Uh, we approach the scriptures, and to me, that's the actual whisperings and the actual manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That's that's the that's the the ruach because it's uh, you know that we are commanded to guard the Torah. We are commanded to to uh, to treasure it, and and meticulously doing that and, and coming up with those ways that we can uh, that we can honor it and guard it. To me, that's the Holy Spirit, as opposed to like. Joseph said earlier, fabricating something to get an emotional hype and, and, to, and to make it uh, just strange and to uh, appeal to the sensations—that's not the Holy Spirit. Like to, to me, this is this is a, this is a, how we can really intimately um, keep those commandments of, of of guarding and treasuring the Word of God. David, hopefully, stating the obvious, but there's much deeper things going on that are spiritual. Uh, when he says things like um, he's arousing up a uh, what was his exact words arousing up a realm mm. he said that what he was doing right there at that moment and he is speaking truth whether he realizes it or not he's creating spiritual strongholds in the minds of those people and anyone who buys that trash and then that is why we are to become disciples through the tearing down of these strongholds mm -hmm. through the 
rightly dividing the word, speaking the truth. And uh, this is a dangerous thing that this man is doing. This has spiritual connotations that I doubt if he realizes. Maybe he does. Um, again, I won't speak to him personally, but what he's doing is extremely dangerous. Yep. Because we can, we can judge the fruit. They're, doing, they're beginning to do things that are tantamount to witchcraft in the name of Yeshua. Is literally what he's doing on that stage. Johnny? I believe that also seeing the video further solidifies the importance of us and, and on our part being Bereans to test what someone is saying against the actual reality of, and truth of the Word of God and saying, okay, this doesn't line up. What this guy just said is, okay, and then bringing it to the right person's intention and, and asking God for, you know, to reveal to them through the Holy, Holy Spirit that, okay, what is correct, even when you have a false teacher. And it's just the importance of, of that being the Marine and being spirit-led as you're doing the reading, not just under the leadership of a charismatic speaker. Yeah. I, I am so taken uh, by this demonstration um, because I bump into people all the time that are completely off track. They have been completely deceived and most of my time is involved with sitting down with folks one-on-one -on -one or couples and helping clear away the trash, the baggage that they're coming into the Messianic movement with when they hit Bellator's doors. They come in and they think, well, I am Jewish. Or name 19 things out of what this guy just said. They believe these things because their teachers have told them that. And eventually they get disillusioned wander around a bit, and they end up at our door. And it's our responsibility to be able to gently say, it's okay. You got hoodwinked. That's not true. Here's the truth. And you can't do that unless you know the truth. You can't do that unless you're studying the Word of God. Unless you listen to this kind of stuff from time to time and recognize it doesn't match up with what you've been studying day in and day out. And that's so important. That's what this is all about. I hope not to step on any toes, but um, a lesser offensive, if you will, um, version of that is Sid Roth, who is now getting popular all over the world, including Africa. Yeah. And the third world is very given to this type of emotional, uh, hyper-spiritual yeah. um, stuff. And yeah. it's something that and I'm fighting in Malawi now. And, and there's a lot of men like him that are masters just milking it out yeah. so it just sounds so spiritual. A little bit of scripture with a little bit of poison. Yeah. People are going to die. Roger? Yeah, it's, it's sin in the camp. Mm. Okay, I've read his books. This gentleman from Denver or whatever. If you read his books, you can get an understanding of where he's at. But he's supposedly in the same, quote, area that we're in. Same with Sid Roth. So what happens, it's like, okay, we got a, we got a problem in the camp because he's bringing all this exposure, like you were saying, okay? People are thinking about, our, our Jewish brothers are saying, what's going on here? You know, what's up with this? 
You won't be. Well, the people in the church yeah. are looking at going, mm-hmm. are you exactly. serious? <laughs> so that's why I get so frustrated when I saw this the first time and I read his stuff and whatever. The man, it, it just, and I wasn't even in this group, but he's bringing shame on us, our, our fellowship worldwide because of his actions. Well, and ultimately he's, he's bringing shame on Hashem and on Messiah Yeshua. So. Which is one reason why I think that um, it is a group like this that is so important because it's our job to provide the contrast. Because, yes, the average person who is into this or has seen this and thinks it's weird and runs into us may have that initial reaction to us, too. When they hear we're messianic. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I remember I had a conversation with a Jewish girl when I worked at Staples, um, and you know, she was very kind of almost hostile to me when she heard I'm Messianic because she immediately lumped me in with, you know, kind of the more extremist types. And it's, I was very quick to say, no, I'm not with them. And um, we were able to have like a much, you know, then it was like, like an odd connection. I was more Jewish than she was. Um, and, and so I feel like, you know, I, I've seen, um, I feel like there's opportunities, uh, even just wearing my kippah around, I had a you know an Israeli girl just sort of at the um, Catholic church starts jabbering to me in Hebrew and Juliana just asked me in Hebrew because who else would wear one of these? You know I had a um, I had an older couple in a church actually come up and start talking to us about Israel because they've been to Israel. So it's like I feel like by when we do find the traditions of of Judaism that are backed up with Scripture that are that are good to follow, then I think that it inst that it ends up being the counterbalance to things like this. So when we do treat the Torah school correctly, if by chance there's somebody here who knows anything about that, they're going to go, ah, I- I've seen this before. These people actually have a respect for my people and for where I come from. And I hope that that be the case all the time in our lives. Indeed. Um, I should just mention... After this, and this, this video went viral as soon as it was pushed on the net last year, and of course it, it resulted in all kinds of, you know, um, outcry from the Jewish community, uh, as it should have, and, and there were, it was, it was a minority, but there were a few Messianic groups and Messianic leaders that also said this is just total, you know, uh, baloney. Um, and. And Ralph Messer, uh, I'm not going to refer to him as a rabbi. Ralph Messer did make a public apology. Bishop Eddie Long also did make a public apology. Uh, So, in fairness, I need to I need to communicate that as well. But another subtle thing that I've noticed for several years now is. Anytime there's a movement of God and there's a work of God, one of the first things the enemy wants to do is to counterfeit that, to hijack that movement, to hijack that truth. And so this should make us aware of not just these outrageous cases, uh, but mainstream. I've heard John Hagee say things that are over the top Mm -hmm. uh, regarding Jews and Messianic Judaism. And so we should test everything according to the word because uh, as Joe pointed out you know, the enemy will take 99% truth and put a little bit of a lie in it and make it very attractive to people and they will get misled and so we, we need to be very careful with everything and a little leaven 
leavens the whole lot. All right, do we have a prayer to end this thing? problem. <laughs> Hopefully you guys, uh, anybody learn anything tonight? Oh, awesome. How did you do? Is this the one we normally do? No, no. <laughs> When the rabbis of old take leave of each other at the study hall. Which is where we are. Yes, which is um, the Beit Midrash, right? Study hall. Uh, of Rabbi Ami, they would say one to another, <clears throat> We shall see, I'll, you shall see your world in your life, and your end shall be with the life of the world to come, and your hope for many generations. May your heart ponder and achieve understanding. May your mouth speak wisdom, and may your tongue bring forth song. May your eyelids look straight before you. May your eyes be enlightened by the light of Torah, and may your face shine like the brightness of the sky. May your lips utter knowledge, and your kidneys rejoice in righteousness, and your feet run to hear the words of the Ancient of Days. Amen. Amen. Thank you, man. I like that.